welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vacker, and I am studio, in studio, right here in Tucson, Arizona, live streaming from Calvary Christian Fellowship. And in studio with me is our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey, everybody. And <clears throat> Pastor Sean Richards. Hello. <laughs> <clears throat> We're excited to be here with you. Happy Thursday. We hope you've had a great week so far. And if you're new to the program, this is a Bible Answer program where you, our live stream audience, can ask questions of our in-house scholars, uh, well-read scholars. study men. <laughs> you know, we actually know what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> where you can ask questions about the Bible, the Christian worldview, comparative religions, whatever it is that's uh, sort of uh, on your heart, on your mind, uh, is Christianity reasonable? and uh, many more questions like that. And there are multiple ways you can do so. You can join us, of course, uh, where we started on uh, on this live stream. We started live streaming to Facebook, so go to facebook.com, search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, or just type in the URL forward slash CCF Tucson. You can ask questions there just by joining the live stream and using the comments section. We'll be monitoring all these platforms throughout the program. So if you have a question, just type it out. Uh, as long as it's sincere, and again, we, we try to encourage folks to not use that as a way to argue with other people. Uh, just ask a question, and we'll uh, try to field those questions during the program. You can also catch us on YouTube. Just search for A Reason for Hope on our YouTube, uh, searching for our YouTube channel. Same thing, just use the comment section to ask your questions, and we'll get to them there. <clears throat> and our YouTube channel, if you want to go directly to there, uh, is forward slash at A Reason for Hope 546. Last but not least, you can catch the live stream also on our website. If you go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, uh, you can not only watch the live stream there, but you can also, there's a little comment box. You can leave your questions there. And of course, if you want to take advantage of our little prayer request button, you can do so as well. So you can just go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, click the Watch Live tab, and you can watch the live stream there. We also have an app, so if you want to watch this program, you can even go and look it up uh, archives of the program. You can download our app. It's available on the iTunes and Google Play Store. It has a great little digital Bible. You can highlight texts, leave yourself notes during messages. You can go through all our archive messages. We are a church that teaches book, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So if you would like to go through a specific book of the Bible. As a personal study, you can go through our past sermons and messages and go through a book. <clears throat> There's also a little chat function where you can join or create chat groups and really just be more intimately involved with our community. So I'd encourage you to download that if you have not yet. We also have a channel that you can add to any of the Amazon Fire or Roku products. So if you want to watch our Wednesday and Sunday services, including this program, which we do every weekday, Monday through Friday, from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. You can do so. And if you want to leave a question for this program but don't want to do so on any social media or public sort of platform, maybe more discreetly, you can do so by just emailing us. I will check this email inbox throughout the program. That email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope, all letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. Also, <clears throat> encourage you to follow our senior pastor on X platform, formerly Twitter, and you can do so by searching for his uh, Twitter handle at ScottR4H, at ScottR4H. You can also leave questions there. Uh, Pastor Scott does keep an eye on that feed throughout the program. 
Before we get to your questions today, we'll take a moment to pray. So we'd encourage you to join us wherever you might be listening from. And then we'll uh, get started with the program. Awesome. Let's do that. Father, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to spend time in your word together. We pray, Father, that uh, the questions that are asked and the answers that are given would be honoring to you. We pray, Father, we would speak the truth in love and allow you, through your Holy Spirit, to touch the lives of many, many people. Lord, opening people's eyes to the understanding that you love them, that you sent your Son to die for them, that he rose from the dead in a moment of history, so we could be sure uh, about uh, life, death, the afterlife, and how to make a uh, soft landing we get out of this place. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you, Father, for uh, watching over and protecting uh, the people of Israel. We pray, Father, that uh, you would protect as well the uh, civilians that are in harm's way in this uh, particular conflict, but even more importantly, Lord, uh, guard and uh, oversee uh, the precious sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, mm -hmm. not only in the war zone, but uh, all across the world in these very strange and troubling times that we live in. Thank you that we can give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, Pastor Scott, do we have a short uh, current events prophecy update? Well, uh, just a couple things we wanted to touch on. Uh, we've been mentioning this week uh, about how uh, one of the more interesting aspects of biblical prophecy is uh, found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which speaks about uh, the fact that uh, characteristic of the end times is going to be a strong delusion that uh, people are going to be under. Uh, that uh, the people susceptible to this are those who did not receive the love of the truth uh, in order to be saved. Well, uh, I think we're definitely along with uh, other uh, examples of uh, birth pains, wars and rumors of wars, for sure, being among them. Uh, I think we're also seeing a, an incredible rise in uh, what we could call strong delusion. Uh, we're seeing uh, that uh, the war going on between Israel and the terrorists of Hamas is not only being fought with bombs and bullets and uh, underground tunnels and such, but also uh, for the hearts and minds of people. And uh, the uh, media narrative, whoever seizes that uh, high ground, if you will, uh, tends to sway public opinion, and public opinion tends to sway politicians, and politicians' decisions can sometimes uh, decide the course of wars. I have to be very, very careful uh, about the uh, resources that uh, we're getting our information from. Uh, case in point, uh, the website honestreporting.com uh, had this report on October 7th. Hamas terrorists were not the only ones who documented the war crimes they had committed during the deadly rampage across southern Israel. Some of their atrocities were captured by Gaza-based photojournalist working for the Associated Press, Reuters, the New York Times, and CNN, uh, whose early morning presence at the breached border area raises serious ethical questions. What were they doing there so early on what would ordinarily have been a quiet Saturday morning? Was it coordinated with Hamas? Did the respectable wire services, which published the photos, approve of their presence inside enemy territory together with the terrorist infiltrators? Did the photojournalists who freelance for other media like CNN and the New York Times notify these outlets? Judging from the pictures of lynching, kidnapping, and storming of an Israeli kibbutz, it seems like the border had been breached not only physically, but also journalistically. Now, four names appear on the Associated Press photo credits from the Iran-Gaza border area, uh, Hassan al-Assaya, Yusuf Massoud, Ali Mahmoud, and Hatem Ali. Uh, al-Assaya, very interesting fellow, a freelancer who works for CNN, crossed into Israel, took photos of a burning Israeli tank, 
and then captured infiltrators entering the Kibbutz Kafar Aza, where many of the atrocities took place. Uh, very interesting. Honest reporting obtained screenshots of uh, LSI's now removed tweets on X, where he dumb, uh, documented himself standing in front of the burning tank. He didn't wear a press vest, a helmet, and Arabic caption on the tweet, tweet said, live from inside the Gaza Strip settlements. Uh, shortly after the publication of this article, uh, Honest Reporting was alerted to the footage of Hassan Al-Asaya standing next to the tank. In addition, a photo has surfaced showing Al-Asaya with Hamas leader and mastermind of the October 7 massacre, Yaha Sinwar. Uh, so we are basically seeing uh, that some of the, what some people would say go-to sources like the AP, uh, like CNN, like the New York Times, uh, were uh, essentially contracting with individuals who, for lack of a better term, were part of the invasion itself. Uh, I think, at the very least, journalistic objectivity uh, gets thrown out the window in cases like this. Uh, the fact that these uh, so-called journalists, supposedly in the employ of these major news uh, uh, services, uh, all had cell phones, all had the ability to, to contact and communicate, but uh, raised no uh, warnings whatsoever of the atrocities that, say, took place at Kafaraza and others. Uh, so uh, really interesting uh, thicket, if you will, of ethical questions being raised about the veracity and reliability of uh, the uh, reporting uh, that we're getting from these major news outlets. You say, well, where can we go uh, for a more even-handed approach? Uh, you know, I think a wide variety of sources are uh, good to uh, take a look at. Uh, we point people to uh, our friend Amir Serfati and his Behold Israel site. If you uh, follow him on his Telegram uh, uh, channel, uh, you'll get a lot of uh, stories all through the day uh, about what is going on there. Uh, Allisrael.com uh, that our friend Joel Rosenberg has uh, pioneered. Uh, is also a great place to go. I'd recommend as well uh, the uh, Times of Israel. I'd also recommend uh, taking a look at the Jerusalem Post. Uh, some of these uh, uh, tend to have a little bit more of an editorial spin to them. But as far as the alphabet networks go, uh, the legacy media, for lack of a better term, uh, I would take everything that they say uh, coming out of this situation with a huge grain of salt because, among other things, We've seen them uh, take uh, with uh, unqualified acceptance uh, the kind of, uh, say, casualty figures that were put forth by uh, the uh, uh, officials in Gaza that were directly working for Hamas. I'm not sure that's the best place to go for just the facts, ma'am, uh, approach. Uh, the other things going on in Israel right now, to the north of Israel in Syria, apparently the United States has pounded uh, Iran-backed positions of the militias that are there in uh, reaction to the fact that uh, these various uh, Iranian-controlled militias have attacked U.S. positions in Syria and in Iraq wow. uh, with, uh, and we're not sure the extent of the injuries, but over 40 uh, U.S. troops have been uh, injured. We don't know if there are any actual casualties hmm. that were involved or any kind of deaths involved with it, but uh, the United States is responding strongly to that. Uh, there is a tit-for-tat exchange of uh, rockets going on from the Hezbollah uh, terrorists in Lebanon uh, in the north. But uh, most interesting, it seems that the Houthi rebels, 
again, another wholly owned Iranian subsidiary, uh, has been uh, going out of its way to launch attacks at the southern uh, Red Sea city uh, of Israel a lot. Apparently, three different um, uh, ballistic missiles have been taken out, and uh, we're still trying to find out exactly what happened, but a drone crashed into a school in Elat earlier. Whether that was an Israeli drone or not, we're not exactly sure. Chances are it may have been an Israeli drone that simply went off course. But uh, the fact of the matter is Elat does seem to be a uh, growing target for these uh, kind of actions. Uh, as far as the battle inside Gaza is concerned, the Shifa hospital is going to be the, uh, the bone of contention. Uh, Israel could drop a bunker-busting bomb on the top of the thing and destroy it, but as is uh, Hamas's uh, standard operating procedure, uh, there are doctors and patients and nurses and staff that are there in Shifa hospital, although uh, Hamas uses this and has their main command and control center underneath uh, the mm. Shifa Hospital. It's the, uh, I guess, the uh, uh, epicenter of their uh, tunnel network and so on. So uh, Israel is being cautious uh, to be able to invade a uh, structure like this, especially with a high concentration of uh, the best kind of soldiers that Hamas could muster. It's going to be a very, very difficult campaign indeed. Mm. But apparently they do have the area surrounded and are closing in. But, what's, uh, what's making it very difficult is that they're painstakingly avoiding civilian casualties. Right, right. I keep hearing it, protesters it, say, you know, 5,000 civilians have already been, um, based on what information, where are they getting these numbers from? From uh, the <laughs> terrorists in Gaza. Uh, you know, it's interesting. There was an interview that was done with uh, protesters that were out protesting against Israel and uh, their oppressive ways, and uh, the uh, interviewer, asked them, uh, so uh, are you uh, aware of how this conflict began? And most of them had no idea about any of the things that happened on October 7th. They were just anti-Israel. Hmm. And by the way, uh, I'll uh, wrap up with this. Uh, ironically enough, tonight is the 85th anniversary of the event called Kristallnacht, where uh, the anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany uh, actually manifested itself in a uh, pogrom, uh, a destruction of Jewish property, mm. uh, the uh, beating and even killing of Jewish people. It was definitely the predecessor of the Holocaust. So uh, definitely wow. pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, pray for uh, the people of Israel. Pray for their leadership. Pray that our leadership in this country is going to stand firm with Israel in all of this uh, because, uh, boy, after uh, the elections, uh, last week, uh, where, say, the state of Ohio enshrined in their constitution uh, the right to have an abortion up to the 40th week. Now, it's a completely viable baby can be uh, eviscerated, according to law there. Uh, and, and by the way, the uh, uh, referendum passed uh, with over 70% of the vote. Uh, you know, we start messing around with innocent children. God's watching. Mm -hmm. he's, he's taking notice. And, uh, boy, we really need to be getting the word out as far as uh, the, the message of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, these sort of decisions are going to have consequences. Mm. I remember uh, just earlier today listening to a report where there were some foreign reporters in Gaza and saying things like, yes, we physically saw Hamas terrorists hide behind civilians. They're practically 
holding them hostage and not letting them leave. They'll get shot if they try to head south. They have been shot. Yeah, and rockets have shot vans full of people trying to flee the state. Yeah, on our Twitter feed, we have a picture of a um, Hamas operative uh, launching an RPG into a van filled with people trying mm -hmm. to get through a checkpoint to get to the wow. south. And this reporter said that uh, if we had turned our cameras to the terrorists, we would have gotten shot also, just for reporting what was going on on the ground. <clears throat> Unbelievable. And, uh, yeah, keep praying for <laughs> praying for Israel, praying for peace in the region. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mike Hill wants to know a uh, really good, interesting question. That How was asked I... last Monday. Oh, it was? Exactly the same way. Oh, okay. Should we? Yeah, it's a necessary topic. All right, good. Well, how do I worship God in spirit and truth? And also be obedient correctly. I always find myself checking my motives, attitude, and heart, and never sure if I'm doing things in faith rather than religion. Well, so. yeah, an, an excellent question, and maybe the best way to tackle it, uh, as we already have, beyond uh, what we've uh, we've already answered on this, might probably didn't get the opportunity to hear the answer. So we're happy to answer it again because it is a very good question. Uh, the whole phrase, worshiping in spirit and truth, what is the context of that? Where does this show up in Scripture? Well, it shows up uh, when Jesus got involved with a conversation with a Samaritan woman that he met at a well while his disciples were off getting supplies. Uh, the woman was shocked uh, that Jesus asked her for a drink in this city called Sychar uh, at Jacob's well. And uh, we're told that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, it carried the idea that a Jew would not even use a utensil that a Samaritan had ever handled before. So Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. The woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank for himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to, into everlasting life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water that I might not have to come here and draw. Well, she's kind of clearly playing dumb here, like uh, this is a waterworks project. Uh, Jesus said to her, uh, You know, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. He's, Jesus said, you well said, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. And this you spoke truly. The woman said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, is called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, very interesting uh, statement that Jesus makes about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Uh, what we see here is that the Samaritans certainly uh, were sincere in their desire to pursue spiritual things. 
they had their own uh, place called Mount Gerizim where they were worshiping. And uh, the woman, in a sense, was uh, setting Jesus up with a gotcha kind of a question, sort mm-hmm. of a same kind of question that, say, a reporter uh, might ask when they say, well, Senator, how long has it been since you stopped beating your wife? I mean, not really any kind of great answer to a question like that. And uh, her question was this, you know, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing about that is, is if a Samaritan uh, were to go to Jerusalem and attempt to worship at the temple and got anywhere inside what was called the court of the Gentiles, we have archaeological remains uh, that uh, you can see one displayed in the uh, Jewish Museum of Natural History, uh, and they were called uh, shadigs, and uh, what they would have on them was a warning saying, if any Gentile or Samaritan violates this boundary, they will only have themselves to blame with the death with which they will die. So uh, this Samaritan woman knew that. Uh, if any Samaritan wanted to go down to Jerusalem, they would be considered uh, outsiders, less than dirt, probably stoned. Mm-hmm. The process of wanting to seek God, right? <clears throat> and so the Samaritans had their own uh kind of mock-up temple, if you will, a place where they mm-hmm. offered sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. Well, Mount Gerizim was significant scripturally because this is where the blessings and the cursings were, were uh, presented to the people of Israel. On Mount Gerizim, uh, blessings were pronounced on Israel for keeping the law. On Mount Ebal, curses were announced for those who would not keep the law. So they had this place where they could go and worship, and they were very sincere about it. They they wanted to, as far as they understood, worship God. But really, uh, over the years, uh, they had uh, introduced uh, you know various aspects from idolatry that uh, they'd picked up along the way. Uh, the Samaritans were individuals that uh, had intermarried uh, with the Gentile people. That people like the Assyrians and others had resettled in the area of, of Israel. And so it was kind of like an old age, new age movement. Hmm. And these individuals were kind of the uh, examples of the go along to get along sort of uh, mentality with the, their, their heritage and so on. You know, and so what this woman basically was saying to Jesus was, was this, okay, um, you Jews won't allow us to worship in Jerusalem, but you won't accept our worship that we go on, that's going on here at Mount Gerizim as being authentic. So which is it? Are you people hopeless religious bigots because you won't uh, accept our kind of worship? Or are you uh, individuals who are uh, so uh, concerned about uh, your own status before God, you'll kill us if we try to get close? Which is it? Uh, And so Jesus, as he always does, takes the issue deeper. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. We'll neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Uh, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, notice, Jesus didn't say, hey, whatever floats your boat. You know, you guys are being sincere. You know, I got a coexist bumper sticker in the back of my chariot here. Uh, you know, if, as, as long as you're, you're trying your best, I'm sure God will accept it. Well, no, he's saying you worship what you don't know. Uh, that's a pretty heavy-duty indictment. Yeah. If you say to somebody about their religious convictions, you're worshiping in ignorance, uh, most people would be a little offended by that. But Jesus lays it out. Sincerity was not going to be enough. Uh, they had the right attitude. They wanted to approach God, but they didn't have the truth. And so when we speak about worshiping God in spirit and in truth, what it means is this. Our worship 
of God should be sincere, but it should also be scriptural. Mm. And one does not outweigh the other, if you will. I've run into people who could quote me chapter and verse from the Bible and even quote early church fathers in a discussion on spiritual things. The only problem was the guy was a Shinto Buddhist. Didn't do him any good, see? I mean, he had, in a sense, the truth, but no spirit. He didn't have a spiritual relationship mm. with God. So worshiping God in spirit and truth, I guess, uh, bottom lining it for you, Michael, is, is this. We come to God based upon his truth, but we come to God based upon a heart where we desire to honor and worship him. We're not going to tell God his business. We're going to say, okay, God... This is how you've, you've said I'm to be saved. This is how you say I'm to live the Christian life. I have a heart and a desire to do that. And it's the overflow of a love relationship mm. I have with him manifested in the truth. You know, if uh, on the one side of the coin we say, well, I'm sincere, I just don't know all that bible stuff. Well, you know, in a sense, if we say we've got a relationship with God, but we don't pay the slightest attention to anything he says about life or how he's to be worshiped, uh, we don't have a relationship with him. We've just got some intellectual theory about it. Mm. Uh, but on the other side of the coin, we can have all our T's crossed and I's dotted. But uh, if uh, we don't have the right heart as we come to God, mm. we don't have a heart of humility and compassion, we're spinning our wheels. I think uh, maybe the best answer to your question, Michael, is uh, just to go back to uh, Micah 6.8. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, I think if you do those three things, you're going to be just fine. Anything you'd add to that? You know, just uh, clarifying to people who are worried, like, oh, no, repeat questions. We don't mind answering the same question, but maybe three weeks would be a good cap before it starts to get monotonous, as Curly would say. Uh, when it comes to these issues, though, um, godly living, spirit and in truth, all these sort of issues, just make sure that when it comes to, as Paul the Apostle said, not failing the test. If you are doubting where your relationship with God is headed, the best place to go is a reference to where it started. And if you started in the wrong place, then obviously that's a good place to correct. Better to start a race late than to finish the wrong one. So if you are wondering, you know, am I really growing in my relationship with God? Follow Jesus' advice to the church of Ephesus and go back to your first love. How did you come to a relationship with God in the first place? And if there's a difference between what's motivating you now as opposed to then, that's the first check. Yep, I agree. Great. Thank you. Thank you for those uh, um, <clears throat> questions, and thanks for asking again. We, we uh, love that you're watching the show, uh, Mike, so appreciate that. Uh, Robert wants to know um, about... When Jesus led the souls of the righteous that waited for him in Abraham's bosom. So do we know in any way, scripturally, that Jesus preached to them in Abraham's bosom, or is that a made-up teaching? In other words, was he just telling a story to, like, a parable, or was this something that was not parable-like? I'm trying to read in between the lines here, Robert, but uh, was this something that actually occurred? Did Jesus actually go and preach to those who were waiting uh, for the Messiah, looking forward to the Messiah, but had passed away before he came? And did he preach to them in Abraham's bosom, 
or is that a made-up teaching? Thanks, and God bless you guys. Thank you for the question. What do you guys think? No, Ephesians 4.8 is not a made-up teaching. It's, it's in the Bible. Um, of course, for those of you who aren't caught up on all of the terms here, the reference to Abraham's bosom is taking a literal, and we believe that's warranted, approach to one of Jesus' accounts of the afterlife in what's known as the rich man and Lazarus story. Uh, a man by the name of Lazarus, not the older brother of Mary and Martha, but this man was described as a poor man who lived outside of a rich man's home. Uh, some think that rich man was a proper name, but be that as it may, the translation still sound. It's describing him as rich, and he was indeed. But the point was when Jesus made an interesting contrast between how they lived their lives and how they afterlived, if you will. Yeah. Um, one man, of course, had a very difficult life, but was ultimately right in his relationship with God, which the culture would have seen as the opposite. If you had a good relationship with God, then everything should be going great for you. Yet for some reason, Jesus identifies this man, Lazarus, as righteous, not where it mattered to them, but where it mattered to God, because at the end of the day, he was standing at Abraham's side. That's another way for bosom. They were awaiting their redemption. Now, we'll emphasize that more in a second here. The rich man was, of course, by all intents and purposes, given everything that he wanted in this life, everything that people would expect of a godly living, yet interestingly enough, had no relationship with God. He would have been a living fulfillment of the man Jesus described in an actual parable, where Jesus was discussing a man who had a bumper crop. He would have been set for life, given all the grain he had at his disposal, yeah. and he was going to die that night. Yeah. And then the lesson of the story was what? Not the rich man and Lazarus, but this parable he was teaching, so is the man who is wealthy in this world, but is a pauper before God, using the King James term. So with all that being said, what happened? Well, the rich man was in a state of torment, not torture, but internal anguish, and described it as though he was in flames. And for some reason as well, despite being in this place of not fun, he still felt obligated for Lazarus to serve him. So it wasn't as if, oh, I learned my lesson now. No, he stayed just as corrupt there as he would be here. And demanded... Still giving orders, yeah. Yeah, demanded that Lazarus come over and cool his tongue. And Abraham responds to him on Lazarus's behalf and says, there's a gulf fix. We're not able to go over there. You're not able to come over here. So there's a distinction between those who are in what's called the realm of the dead. You can see examples of this in the Psalms. It's referred to as Sheol. But when then this man, and having a conscious awareness, not just of his present circumstances, but his past life, says, send word, send Lazarus even, to my brothers so that they don't come to this place. Notice, he doesn't say, I shouldn't be here. He says, I don't want my brothers to come here. Abraham's response, and this is important in understanding what brought up this story to begin with, Jesus said, quoting Abraham, they have the law, that's a reference to the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, basically the other <laughs> books of the Old Testament mm -hmm. beyond Moses. And uh, the rich man says, no, 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 but if someone were to rise from the dead, then they would believe. And Abraham pointedly points out the intended audience were the Pharisees. Remember that. They're about to see Jesus rise from the dead. And the context of this conversation sets that tone. They would not believe if someone were to rise from mm. the dead. 
And that was the mark of condemnation. That's what brought up this conversation. Now, there's two positions on it, whether it's a real-life account and uh, insight into the afterlife that Jesus is providing. We take that position. Others say that this is a parable meant to illustrate that finer point like any of the others were. The problem is the structure is a little bit different. No parable uses proper names, for example, like Lazarus. And we could also grant the rich man is a general term, but that's telling. And Abraham. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) that's telling. So all these things being said, what then ties this into Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8? Well, if we turn there, we note that's where we get the passage and the quote where it says that he went and led captivity captive. And reading the surrounding verses as well as what's being referenced might give some insight into this because, believe it or not, it's a quote from uh, something else. Uh, In verse 7, it says, To each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, when he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men, Paul goes on to explain, parenthetically, now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, pausing before we get into verse 10, Paul's giving an explanation here. Lower parts of the earth. How would a Hebrew have understood that? Well, he would have understood that as the uh, domain of the dead, Sheol. All right, so same setting as the rich man and Lazarus account, right? If that's then the common setting, what's the common purpose between what Jesus is saying, or what Jesus did, quote-unquote, and what Paul is saying by the Holy Spirit Jesus did when he first descended, if he ascended, right? And we mean this to believe that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Mm -hmm. But if he first descended, what was he doing down there? Was he a living illustration of that bad Carmen song where Jesus is like Rocky Balboa getting beat up by the devil in capital H hell? In actual hell, yeah. yeah. Or, as this text says, leading captivity captive, giving gifts to men. I've been in a situation where I wasn't feeling too hot, or I guess in this case, too hot. But uh, he says what? Giving gifts, leading. You can describe someone in maybe a feverish state or maybe when they're on fire, not in the mood to say, hey, I'm going to dress up as Santa Claus and teach the kids. It would not only ruin the material you're wearing, but it would also be very painful. That would get your attention there. So note that point. We're pointing out absurdities in the interpretation. Verse 10. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then goes on to note a point he also made in 1 Corinthians about spiritual gifts. But that point is being said. What? It starts with the fact Jesus first descended, then ascended. Well, with the common environment with the common language that Paul himself would also have been familiar with, because remember the gospel accounts were based off of things that the apostles had been teaching for years. And if these retellings of what Jesus told them were being brought to mind intentionally by the Spirit, as Jesus himself said before he went to the crucifixion, then that's what's kept in mind when Ephesians 4, 8 mentions this of him descending and then ascending, Why did he descend? Because he still had sins to pay and had to go to capital H hell? No, because on the gospel, or in the gospel of John chapter 19, we have a direct eyewitness. John was at the foot of the cross when he said this. Said what? Tetelestai, or in Greek, it is finished. Almost, oh. 
not, I mean, not, not almost, but <laughs> we're just getting start or start, uh, it's done. to be continued. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, we're, we're being a little, we have fun here, but the, you see at the point yeah. that's being made here. So if Jesus accomplished that work on the cross, then him descending wasn't for <clears> any <throat> redemptive work. It wasn't for any suffering work. It wasn't even for necessarily any ceremonial work. It was to do what? Well, it was probably for a reason. Let's at least all agree on that. Yeah. Secondly, if he went to the place of the dead and, of course, remained there for three days, the question is what he was doing. If it wasn't accomplishing our redemption, that's out. If it wasn't, you know, just kind of sitting there waiting for the Father to call him up because, you know, that crucifixion was a tough thing, you know, he deserved a little bit of a break. Yeah. No, it was to go where Jesus had already set up the picture during his earthly ministry of where the righteous dead were waiting. Mm. And if there's a distinction between the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, those who looked forward to a resurrection of life, Daniel chapter 12, and those who were dreading in torment the conscious resurrection to condemnation, what we would know as the unrighteous, then we note the distinction. If this picture, and we believe it does because it answers more questions and the conclusion does not contradict with any other plain statements in Scripture, we take Ephesians 4.8 not to be something we made up, but we concluded with more information, not less. And that's what? The, the, the account, not parable, the account of ri the rich man and Lazarus, the note of the absurdity of Jesus having to do a redemptive work after his physical death, and then, of course, the plain statement made in Ephesians 4.8, which was a quote of something else. Yeah, uh, to kind of uh, slam dunk the thing, First Peter chapter uh, 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. So, uh, you know, essentially, he didn't preach in the sense of saying, uh, you get a second chance, uh, we're, we're going to give, you know, do over, you know, for you or the time of Noah. This wasn't or something like a like purgatory. <laughs> uh, no, he made an announcement. You know, he preached, he made an announcement uh, that salvation was now available for those who were on the Abraham's bosom side of Sheol. That was the greatest thing they ever heard. Mm. That meant that they could now go directly into the presence of God. Why couldn't they go into the presence of God before that? Because all sacrifice could do was cover sin. It could not take it away. Only Christ's death on the cross could take that away. And that had to happen, as the scripture said, in the fullness of time. But once that price was fully paid, those who were righteous, those who were in a place of comfort, could then go directly into the presence of God. Now, when someone dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But for the people who rejected a relationship with God, worst thing they ever heard, because mm -hmm. they heard what they could have had but turned away from their entire lives. Their spiritual destiny, if you will, was sealed. So this notion that Jesus was there to suffer no. is a false notion. No. And I forgot, I never mentioned what it was referencing, Psalm 68, 18. Yeah. Mm. And so this story with Lazarus and this rich man is not a parable because it, has all the, it doesn't have any of the hallmarks of a parable, even though the main point of the story is the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, Jesus can... was really good about telling you that he was about to tell you a parable. He will say the kingdom of heaven is like, mm. or hear the parable of. In this one, he just launches in. Mm. And so we can take the information of the scenario, he's, the story he's telling, as factual because right. of that. That's right. good. Yeah. Great, great stuff. Good question. And uh, let's see here. We have next on the docket 
a Bible contradiction, or a I should say, we're going to tackle a a proposed contradiction. Oh, so, uh, we'll if you have a Bible in front of you, look it up and see if this accusation of, that the Bible contradicts itself is an actual contradiction. So we're going to look at John chapter 19, verse 17, and compare that to Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Are these two gospel accounts contradicting one another, thus proving that the Bible is fallible, not inerrant, and not God's perfect word? Okay, so Luke 23, 26, as opposed to John 19, what was it? 17. Okay, now note, this is the first step whenever someone says the Bible contradicts itself. If you get this far, you ask them where and when. They actually give you an example, and this is one of them. Would that then, if it's true, rightly conclude that the Bible shouldn't be trusted because it can't keep its facts straight? The answer would be yes, but guess what? That has to, in fact, be the case. Now, while we're turning there, do you want to handle the John passage? Uh, Yeah, the John passage is... John 19, 17? Okay. All right. You need to know what a contradiction is, which is already a stretch in this TikTok generation. A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic, A does not equal non-A, that two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. If this is in fact a contradiction, then what's being stated is there's no room for harmonization, there's no room for another interpretation, that in the same way and in the same sense, two things are both stated Mm -hmm. as true, and at the same time they would cancel each other out. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, we are told in chapter 23 and verse 26, now they led him, that's Jesus, away, they As they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming up from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. Okay, so what are we told in this single verse, which normally is not an appropriate way to handle these things, but fortunately we already have the contradiction answered in two words. You'll find out why. As they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon the Cyrenian. So, two people already introduced, actually three if you count the Romans in the category as well. The Romans are leading Jesus away, but they put on Simon the Cyrene, they laid hold of him. It was the right of every single occupier of a Roman province to, if they laid their spear on you or their sword on you, they could compel you to carry their equipment at least one mile. Now, Jesus further contextualized this during the Sermon on the Mount, where if someone compels you to walk with them one mile, go with them two. We don't understand that in this day and age because we don't know what it's like to live under a Roman province, (laughs) but that was the idea, is you could volunteer your time to someone who's just trying to take advantage of you. Now, here's the interesting thing. In this case, they do it to a Hebrew, Simon, but he was a part of the diaspora, people who are living outside of the province of Judea, specifically northern Africa. And as he was visiting at the time of the Passover, this would have been a bummer for him and his family, because not only would he be touching blood, but coming in contact, essentially, with that of a dead man, which would eliminate the whole point why he had traveled all the way from Africa to the Middle East in order to do this. Yes, that would be a drag. He (laughs) couldn't attend the temple, but God used it anyway. He got to be a part of something. And he's also uh, mentioned in the epistles as him and his children had come to a relationship with the Lord, so paid Mm. off. But that all being said, 
not trying to distract from the point, just giving you further context because that's actually worth more than this. They laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So you have to bear a burden, you're going to bury this guy's burden because it's our job to make sure he is carrying it off. Why? Because Jesus apparently bore it before you, after Jesus. Notice the sequence. So Jesus has been carrying it. They get Simon of Cyrene to do it. That's the situation. Now, in John chapter 19 and verse 17, what does it say? Well, I think the alleged contradiction is this. It starts in verse 16. It says, then they delivered him. Then he, Pontius Pilate, delivered him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him. In other words, Simon of Cyrene is conspicuous by his absence. It appears from this that Jesus carried his cross. Only Jesus, right? Right. So in this situation, where's the alleged contradiction? Jesus and only Jesus carried his cross the whole way from the uh, what was the the way the of Praetorium? Yeah. What, what what was the the the, the, via, the via Dolorosa? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. The whole mile where he would be publicly humiliated and shamed, as was a part of a full Roman crucifixion. They'd carry his crime, which Pilate, rather tongue in cheek, uh, said, "This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." That's why he's being crucified, and the Pharisees didn't like that. And mm. a man after my own own heart, he didn't care. He liked to mess with them, so <laughs> he carries his cross by himself, right? Right. This says that Simon Cyrene helped part of the way. Now, in a world where we have, say, for example, a historical account, maybe four, <laughs> yeah. of an event, and one of the accounts mentions the big detail, Jesus carried his cross. Another account mentions Jesus carried his cross part of the way, but another guy helped. Does it change the fact that, A, Jesus carried a cross at one point, B, Jesus made the journey, for all intents and purposes, to be crucified at Golgotha. C, are any of the major characters altered? Was it not Mm -hmm. Simon of Cyrene, but was it Nicodemus? It wasn't Simon of Cyrene, it was Judas. It wasn't Simon of Cyrene, it was someone else. Right. There's no cancellation. There is an addition of detail. (gasps) That's possible. Yeah, I guess so. Well, no, the problem is when people try to find these little contradictions, they don't realize that they're... Well, they they do. They just don't paint. They don't point it out. But these are eyewitness accounts. It's like four people witnessing an accident. Someone could say, "Yeah, there was a baby in the back seat." The other person could say, "I saw this car accident, and there was this woman in the front seat screaming and yelling, and she was on fire, and I didn't know what to do." Wait a minute. What, what happened to the baby? Well, that person is not. It's not relevant to their story. Right. Listening to, to the out. screaming, not the crying. <laughs> right. Had the other passage said only Jesus and nobody helped him. And all he the way, it all alone. Then, yeah, then yeah. you could have problems, but yeah, it doesn't. Which John point nineteen that out. says, right? Yeah, no, <clears throat> oh, not a bit. Yeah. So yeah, that's a a common error that people who try to propose contradictions in the gospel narratives they make this mistake ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time. And you solve <laughs> it a hundred percent of the time by asking where and when, looking it up, giving yeah. the chance for harmonization. Because note, as mm-hmm. you said, addition of details are allowed. Why would Luke include this detail? Because while John's account was his own, while Matthew's account was his own, while Mark's was Peter's account, mm-hmm. right? Luke got it not just from his own account. He wasn't there. He interviewed Peter, James, Mark, 
John. Mary. Many yeah. Probably yeah. Mary. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. And them these all. were given opportunities to give more information rather mm -hmm. than less, which is why Luke includes details the others don't. If you have multiple accounts, you have multiple perspectives. Multiple perspectives are going to emphasize yeah. certain things. It's not a contradiction. It's either a deception on the part of the person who's putting this forward, or it's a misrepresentation that they're sharing mm -hmm. because they trusted someone who was also lying to them. Yeah, and one thing I'd... Uh, I'd throw into all of that. If someone comes to you and says, oh, well, the Bible contradicts itself, uh, you know, and they throw out, say, this example, uh, you know, or another one of the famous examples, did Judas hang himself or was he disemboweled? Uh, you know, the and, and you find yourself going, whoa, you know, I never really even thought about that, you know, mm -hmm. and he kind of catches you flat-footed. Don't be afraid of being, being caught flat-footed. It happens to all of us. What you do is you say to the person, honestly, don't try to do a song and dance or, well, I'm really glad you asked that question and go off on a tangent. Uh, just say, you know, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, if you would be interested in seeing if there's an answer to that, I will look into that and I will get back to you with that. Would you be interested in me doing that? And, and asking that question, I think, is such an important diagnostic because oftentimes uh, you'll run into people who will go, well, no, I don't even really care. It just uh, the Bible contradicts itself. No, but if there's a, uh, an explanation for this, would you be interested? Well, no, no. Well, if they're not, you know, man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's what Jesus was getting at about casting your pearls before swine. But if someone goes, yeah, I've always wondered about that. Uh, well, then you know, dig away. I mean, have them talk to us on this broadcast. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, do your own homework and say, hey, I really looked into that and uh, this is how this is reconciled. And mm -hmm. then you get an opportunity to be able to build up their, not only their confidence that the Bible is yeah. the word of God, but your own, because you've sought your own answers. Use the tactic that Jesus used. He answered nine out of 10 questions with another question, because when you ask someone a question about their question, it causes them to question their own assumptions and their motives. So when someone says something like, hey, this contradiction, you could ask them, like Scott said, well, if I could show you without beyond a reasonable doubt that the gospel narratives have no real genuine contradictions, how would that change your mind about who Jesus Christ is? Would it mean anything to you? Right. And if they give you a fluff dance, oh, blah, 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 blah. I don't really, I'm interested in religious things. Well, then clearly they're not interested in truth, and their question is really baseless. And you can help them realize that. And Jesus used this tactic all the time uh, brilliantly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, thanks for that uh, little Bible contradiction challenge. I love those. They're always very interesting, especially how many, uh, how, how creative people get <laughs> when trying to find those. Um, Sean, is there anything on your um, um, question roster that uh, that you would find uh, interesting to tackle here today? Well, let me think about that for a second. When it comes to current events with Israel, obviously, we've dealt a lot with anti-Semitism. When it comes to my own studies in Islam, there's, uh, of course, the ever-so-amusing uh, we were talking about this yesterday, facet of Surah 5, 101 to 102, where the Quran commands people not to ask too many questions because those who ask too many questions before you lost their faith. Um, that, that might be something we can get into in a minute. But there's another interesting thing that I was researching, and maybe I can uh, 
pass the buck off to my father because I'm still reading about this. Um, there's some rabbinic traditions that treat Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as one unit, that the description of the righteous man in Psalm 1 is actually a reference to Jesus, and Psalm 2 follows up immediately on that by describing this righteous man's future reign. Is there, or are there, any problems with that? And if not, then, um, well, of course, I don't think we need to change the numbering system. It's not as if the numbers are divinely inspired. They're just to help for references. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Psalm 1 and 2, what do they have in common, and where would they differ? Well, uh, Psalm 2, Psalm 1 and 2, do have uh, one thing in common, in that neither of them are ascribed to a particular author. And if we were going to say that Psalm 1 is distinctly separate from Psalm 2, uh, you know, we could say, well, it's because this was a Psalm of David and this was a Psalm of Asaph, but we don't have any such references. Uh, When you take a look at the superscription, if you will, uh, that uh, leads you into a Psalm, it'll usually tell you who the author was and uh, even give some musical insights into how it was supposed to be presented or performed. Uh, The Psalms are really, in a sense, the songbook of uh, ancient Israel, these songs they would sing and worship to the Lord. So we don't have that. Um, you know, as far as those who would say that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 uh, are one uh, distinct unit, uh, there are those that will say that, uh, again, the last line of, uh, of the last few lines of Psalm 1, it's a contrast between uh, the man who is godly and the wicked, Uh, We're told that uh, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in its season. whose leaf shall not wither, but and whatever he does shall prosper. And then it says, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly will perish. Those would make the case that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are one unit would then say, here is a great example of the last line there, that uh, the way of the wicked will perish. Why will it perish? Well, there we see in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? people's plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Hmm. Well, there's a number of motifs here uh, where we see the blessed man uh, at the beginning of Psalm 1. We see the pathway to becoming the blessed man at the end of Psalm 2. And so for these reasons and some others we could get into, uh, is there any damage that's done to the text by seeing them as a unit, as a whole? Uh, No. Uh, Could this be, uh, in a sense, an example of starting out with an individual 
and then showing how the same principle applies to kings and those who are in authority and that nobody's exempt. Well, certainly you could see that. Um, you know, it's not one of those uh, uh, insights into the word that I go to the mat for. You know, someone says, no, of course they're two different psalms. Okay, it's fine. But we do seem to see a theme there. What do you think? Well, I think that any emphasis on the Psalms with Christ in mind certainly falls in line with you search the Scriptures for them, you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. That would include the Psalms. So if you have a more accurate picture of Jesus in tandem with the righteous man and the righteous ruler, then I think that's that's why I'm reading more into it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Who and when added the chapters and verse breakdown, and is that something that Christians should ever dispute over? Oh, well, that shouldn't be a verse there because it's, a, it's one sentence, or that sort of thing. Well, um, you know, essentially, uh, when we look at our Bibles with chapters and verses and so forth, we even look at the format of a Bible here, the, the book format, uh, very different than the way that people used to look at scriptures. They used to look at them in scrolls. Uh, you know, if you wanted to read the book of Isaiah, you had to get out the Isaiah scroll. Uh, you know, again, uh, as uh, the... Bible was was made more and more uh, accessible to people and uh, was uh, put in the hands of uh, more and more scholars. Uh, the idea of chapters and verse breakdowns uh, became more and more apparent, but uh, they're artificial to the text. The original text is what we're interested in, what the original mm-hmm. had to say. Uh, these things are very helpful to us, mm-hmm. but to say Oh, have you ever studied all the 316 passages in Scripture? Um, Well, you might find some interesting parallels, but it's kind of an artificial construct. And it was Stephanus in 1555. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be here tomorrow, same place, same time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.